So, uh, we're continuing with our series on new beginnings. And when Pastor Deal and Pastor Adam asked me to, to take one of these, they said, well, do you have anybody in particular that you would like to talk about? And I immediately said, Ruth and Boaz, because I just love this story. I mean, one, of course, there's like the history of it, which, sorry, you guys know if I'm preaching, you're getting a history lesson. Um, <laughs> although today, actually, it's going to be more of a geography lesson, so maybe, maybe that'll help a little bit. Uh, I think they locked the back doors so nobody can escape. Um, not really, not really. That'd be a fire hazard. Travis Hill's not here, I hope. He's a fireman and he'd report me. Um, but uh, one of the reasons that I love this story so much beyond, like I said, the historical background is because it's such an amazing picture. Like Ruth is this foreigner, right, who ends up in Israel, and, and we'll talk about this in just a little bit. And it's an amazing picture of her moving from this pagan culture that doesn't worship God, moving into Israel to the worship of the true God and what happens in her life as a result of that. And I love this picture because it's a fantastic metaphor of what happens in our lives when we move from Satan's kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. And so this is what we're going to be talking about today because it's not just Ruth's uh, new beginning, it's our new beginning as well. So, all right. So we're talking about Ruth. Now, Ruth was a woman from the land of Moabite, or excuse me, Moab. She was a Moabitess. That's a, a fun word. Say that three times fast with me, Moabitess, Moabitess. Okay, like three of you did. Thank you. Um, but, so, but she was a Moabitess, and that means that she was from the country and the, and the region of Moab. Now, Moab was not just like a region. Moab was also like a tribe or an ethnic group. Uh, they were descended from uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. He had a son named Moab, and the Moabites were descended from, from them as well. And this story takes place in the period of the judges. So if you've read through the Old Testament, there's, you know, uh, Abraham brings the, the Israelites, or did I say Abraham? Moses brings the Israelites out of Egypt, all right? And so then, you know, uh, after uh, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and they start taking country, and they start moving in. And then after Joshua dies, uh, uh, occasionally God would raise up judges to help the Israelites when they were having problems, when there were foreigners attacking them, and things like that. And that is found in the book of Judges. So again, Ruth takes place towards the end of the time of the judges. And so in this story, we learn about this lady named Ruth. And she was from Moab, and I think we have a map here, right? So this is Moab, kind of this uh, pinkish region here. And you can see over here Jerusalem and Bethlehem and, and, and all that. So Moab, now the interesting thing about Moab, like I said, they were related. They were descended from Abraham, both the Israelites and the Moabites. But to help put this in perspective, this is like several hundred years after the time of Abraham and Lot. Okay, now we all know Pastor Deal loves his family history, right? He likes to do his genealogy and stuff, and he's way, way better at it, way more in-depth with it than I am, and I've learned a ton from him. And so I've started doing my own family history. And so I've traced uh, my home camp ancestors. The first one came over to this country in about 1860, somewhere in that neighborhood and settled in Ohio, and his name was Christian Helmkamp. And he came from the city of Osnabrück in German, uh, Germany. And I don't speak German. So I probably said Osnabrück wrong anyway. Um, I did a little bit of Spanish in school, so I can, I can handle the Spanish. But Although Pastor David may disagree if, if I can handle the Spanish language. But, uh, but anyway, so i got to stop telling jokes. Um, but so anyway, I've traced it back, and there are actually still Helm Camps 
living in the city of Osnabrück in Germany. We're related. But I don't know them. They don't know me. We don't speak the same language. Like, I wouldn't know one if I passed one on the street. They have a completely different culture. Now imagine if it was even more than just 200 years. Imagine if it was four or 500 years, like it was in this case, all right? So even though they're related, even though they do have some things in common, they have far more not in common. So we're going to look at what happened to Ruth. We're going to look at why this story is even included in the Bible and uh, the things that we can learn from her story. And so we, f- we start off with this uh, uh, Israelite couple named Elimelech. That's another one to say three times fast. Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. So they live in the city of Bethlehem. And at this time, there was a famine in the land of Israel. And so they hear that there's no food in Israel, but you know what? There's food over in Moab. And so they move over there to Moab. So we don't know how long they lived there, but at some point, their two sons grow up and they marry Moabite women. One is named Ruth, and the other one is named Orpah. Fun fact, Oprah Winfrey was supposed to be named Orpah after this story, but they misspelled her name, and that's why she's Oprah instead of Orpah. Not that you cared. (laughs) See, that's going to work out. You'll be playing Trivial Pursuit one day, and you'll thank me. All right. So... Again, we don't know how long they lived there, but after 10 years, Elimelech was dead, and both of the sons died too. So Naomi is completely alone except for her daughters-in-law. And we don't know why the sons died, if there was a plague or like an accident or something like that, but she's all by herself. And so she hears that that the famine that was in Judah in Israel was over. And so she decides, well, there's nothing left for me here, so I'm going to go back home. And so she's getting ready to go back home, and she tells her daughters-in-law. And at first, both Ruth and Orpah are going with her. And then she stops on the road, and she says, wait, 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 wait. There's no reason for you guys to come with me. Like, I appreciate it, but go back home. Go back to your families. You know, go back to your parents. Go back to the gods that you worshipped. You know, you don't need to come with me. I have nothing to offer you. What what are we going to do? Are you going to wait 20 years for me to have another son and, and then marry him? No. Go back to your own people. And Orpah finally says, all right, I will. And she turns around and goes home. But Ruth does not. And this is what Ruth says. We're going to pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. It says, again they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Now, before we get into this next little section, I just want to say it may seem like it's kind of redundant, all right? But the words that she chooses are very important because it's actually kind of a formula. In in the Old Testament, in those times, you would repeat things, and it was a way of saying emphasis, like I'm really serious about this, okay? So it's not just like, you know, Ruth is using seven words when one would do. This This is important. She's really making almost an oath about this. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. 
When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said, nothing more. So the first thing I want us to see in this, in this passage is, don't go alone. We should not go alone. See, Naomi was prepared to make that journey by herself. Can we put that map back up there, please, Don? All right, so, you know, there's somewhere in Moab, we don't know exactly where, but one way or the other, they've got to cross the Dead Sea to get to where they're going. Now, this may look like, oh, it's, it's, they're pretty close together, but look at the map scale. I mean, that's still a pretty significant journey. How many of you have walked 50 miles lately? I mean, I'm lucky if I walk, you know, five miles. You did? All right, good job, buddy. Um, I'm lucky if I walk five miles in a day, you know, according to my Fitbit here, although I'll get some good steps in today going back and forth. Um, Right? But, like, when you're on foot, that's a lot of miles. That's not something that you can just hop in your car or even just hop on your donkey. We have, we have no idea that they had a donkey or a camel or anything, so they're probably hoofing it. Like, that is a long way. And it was a dangerous road. There's bandits, there's wild animals, all sorts of stuff. And she was prepared to go by herself. Now, can you imagine being a woman going by yourself? Like, that's not a good idea even now. But especially back then, because women, you know, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, in that time, women, without the protection of a man, they were fair game. And that's going to play into our story in a little bit, too. All right? But Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. And so now there's two. But more important than safety, it was a relationship. See, look at verses 16 and 17 again. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. See, Ruth was not just saying, hey, yeah, I'll go on a road trip with you. No, she's completely severing all ties to her old life. She's walking away from her parents. She's walking away from her family. She's walking away from her culture. She's walking away from her language. She's walking away from her gods. She's completely saying, I'm done. I am no longer a Moabite. I'm going to be an Israelite with you. That's so significant, guys, because when we leave our old lives behind, when we start following after Jesus, that's what we have to do. We have to cut off that old life. Now, does that mean that we never talk to the people that we knew? Of course not. That's silly. Okay? But what, what we're talking about is like, I am no longer a citizen of that kingdom. Now I'm a citizen of heaven. Yeah. We actually sang about that, and we didn't plan that, by the way. Uh, that was just the Holy Spirit working that out. And it was not only because of her strong relationship with Naomi that she had, but it was her relationship with Naomi's God. See, because there's some clues in there that say that Ruth had already converted to the worship of Yahweh, right? Who did she swear by? She didn't say that Chemosh, who was, who was her old God, would punish her. She said, no, the actual word she used for God, for the Lord in there, is Yahweh, yes. which is the proper name that God used to introduce himself to Moses and the Israelites. She is saying, I am now under his protection. I am now under his judgment. Now he is in charge, not my old gods. See, the Bible is very clear that we are to be in community with each other. Anybody heard there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian? Yeah? Just a handful of scriptures from all the dozens that there are. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 
Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other one can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying together close can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. In Hebrews 10, uh, 24 through 25 says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. When's the last time you motivated somebody to an act of love or good works? When I was doing this study, I was like, I need to take some notes. You know, I'm preaching to myself here. So don't think this is all like, when did you last do this? No. Like, I, I almost don't like to preach sometimes because, you know, like when I'm writing my notes and, and figuring out my sermon, God's like, yeah, you do that. I'm like, I don't like that. No. Hey, you should do this. I'm like, I'd rather not, God. It's easier to just tell other people how to do things, right? Like the whole do as I say, not as I do with your kids. Yeah. But see, God works in all of us. He says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. See, it wasn't just a problem. Uh, It's not just a problem now, people not coming together for church, people not coming together to share their lives. It was a problem right from the very beginning. But see, listen. Coming together for church on Sunday morning for an hour, it is wonderful that you are all here. It's wonderful that you're watching online. It's wonderful that we come together like this. But listen, this is not enough. This is not what God had in mind for community. How many people have ever had a campfire? A handful, yeah? So what happens, you've got this big, beautiful blaze, and you've got these hot coals, and you know, you're like roasting marshmallows and stuff, and so you've got all the coals that are together. What happens if you pull a coal out and set it off to the side by itself? It goes out. But the coals that are together stay warm, stay hot. That fire keeps going. And see, that's one of the reasons why we need each other so badly, because, and I can speak to this from my own life, when I'm cut off, When I'm off to the side, when I'm not with my brothers and sisters in Christ, my fire gets cold. Don't let your fire get cold, church. Romans 12, 4 through 5, Paul's writing, uh, and he says, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. We are the body of Christ. We belong together. We need each other. Paul writes a little bit later. I'm going to paraphrase. I can never remember the exact wording. But, you know, like, does the knee say to the elbow, I don't need you? No. Like, we need all the parts. So, you know, you may be an ankle, but you want to be an eye, but God made you an ankle. That's wonderful. Be the best doggone ankle you can be. Why did Pastor Deal ask me to? <laughs> Sorry, I've never encouraged anybody to be a good ankle before. Um, but for real, though, you know, like, God did not make me a worship leader. He did not give me any sort of musical gift at all. In fact, I am banned from touching musical instruments here. The only time I get a microphone is if I'm talking. If I start singing, they're going to shut it off. Because, you know, you guys won't come back, right? But God gave me other gifts, And so rather than trying to be something I'm not, rather than trying to fulfill a role that God didn't create me for, I'm going to do the best I can in the roles he did give me. 
And that's what we all need to do too because we need each other. Like what would we do if Pastor Deal wasn't such an awesome teacher? What if we had great worship teams and that's all we had? We need more than just one of the same thing. Then Acts chapter 2 verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. How cool is that? That's the early church. The actual first church. It doesn't say they came together once a week for for services. No. They ate together. They prayed together. They attended services together. Yeah, absolutely. But they shared their lives. See, and that's why we're so big. Like, we're going to have another groups launch here coming up in, uh, uh, in March, I think. And that's why we're so big about these small groups. We're like, listen, you need to do a small group with people. You need to get to know people. But more than that, get together with somebody. Have them over for dinner. Go over to their house for dinner. Say, you know, hey, do you like such and such? Oh, yeah, I like boats. Okay, cool. Let's go fishing or, or whatever. It doesn't have to be like a spiritual thing. But get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually have, uh, uh, from one of our groups, this arose, and I'm so thankful, but we actually have three families in our church who now get together on a regular basis. They're not part of a small group together anymore, but they still get together, and their kids play together, and they go on vacations, and they do all sorts of stuff together, and that relationship grew from being part of a small group. Like, how cool is that? It doesn't have to be a formal thing that the church sets up. Go to somebody you've never met before and say, Hey, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? That's all you got to do. So the Bible is so clear, again, because God knows what happens when we're by ourselves. As I said before, it's easy for me to get off track when I'm not around. You know, I've thought about, you know, doing youth group like maybe on a Sunday. But the reason I still do youth group on Wednesday night, even though it's a challenge, because, you know, kids have activities and, you know, the school schedules band concerts. Don't get me going on that. But, um, you know, all this stuff, you know, I'm glad that kids are, are in stuff, because if all you ever do is hang out in the church, you're missing out, right? You need to take Jesus out to the soccer field, and you take Jesus out to the band and, and, and whatever. So I'm glad that our kids are involved in stuff like that. But I still do it on Wednesday night, because if they come to church on Sunday, and then we have youth group on Sunday... What happens during the week? So that's why I still do a Wednesday night youth group because our kids need it. They need that touch. And you know what? I need it. Because when I get around our teens and I see our teens worshiping and I see our teens learning and stuff like that, I'm like, that gets me excited. So we still have, you know, Pastor Deal does his ABF, his adult Bible fellowship, like a Bible study every Wednesday night, 7 to 8. Be here for that. That's a chance to meet more people. It's a chance to get your tank filled throughout the week. That wasn't in my notes. That's a freebie. You're welcome. So, you know, Paul was writing about spiritual gifts, and he mentions again how important we all are. And I know I already touched on this, but I want to read this part too. This is in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 through 27. He says, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored... All the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Did you catch that? If one part suffers, we all suffer. Somebody's going through a hard time, we are going through a hard time. Somebody's struggling with addiction, we are struggling with addiction. Somebody is stuck in sin, we are stuck in sin. Right? 
Because we are a family. Now, I know maybe some of you don't have a, a close family. Uh, sometimes my extended family drives me a little crazy, uh, but they're, they're all good people. And maybe your family of origin is not, or maybe you're just not close to them or whatever. But even though we argue, like seriously, my family has arguments about like who brought a can of corn to the family gift exchange like 12 years ago. Like no joke, that's an argument. It's like, guys, can we just let that go, please? Right? But when the chips are down, we love each other. We care for each other. And it doesn't matter if, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so were just arguing five minutes ago. Oh, you're moving next week? Okay, well, I'll bring my truck. You know? Because that's what a family does. And we are a family. And we need to take care of each other. Now, I know. This is hard. We're all busy. I know, like, there's some stuff at the church that we've talked about. You know, some groups. I'm like, man, I would love to be involved in that. But... I just don't have time. We're always going here and there and everywhere. And, you know, I've got three kids. They're all involved in different stuff. I've got different stuff for the church. And, like, ah, man, we just better take a break and, and not be part of it this time around. And, and it's hard. I'd like to do more. But it can also be hard for guys, too, I think. You know, like, we're tough, right? We don't, we don't need nobody. Like, like, I'm a man. Yeah, right? I'll do it myself unless it involves tools, and then I'm going to call a friend. Um, computers, I got it. I can fix it. But, man, I'm talking directly to you now. And this is young men all the way up to 90, 100 years old. We need each other too. We especially need each other because we live in a culture that says to be a man, you got to go and do all these wrong things. A real man, you know, uh, disrespects women, and a real man drinks, and a real man is, oh, I'm a macho, you know. That's nonsense. That's not what God's picture of a man is. But so many men buy into that. So many young men, so many teenagers buy into that because they don't know any better. Now, I realize that as men, we don't want to sit around and talk about our feelings. I mean, honestly, I don't mind it. I, I like that kind of thing. But, you know, in case you haven't figured it out yet, I'm a little different. Um, but several years ago, I was, uh, I was leading a men's group here at the church. We called it Man Group, which, you know, was an original name. And we were going through this video study. I see a couple of the guys are already grinning. They remember this. And we were going through this video study of the book uh, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, which, guys, if you have not read that, go read that today. It's awesome. And, like, one section of it was really good, but one section of this video, like the guys that are in the, in the video, they were, like, riding horses through the mountains and stuff. And, and then, they, then they sit around a campfire that night, and they all start, like, crying, talking about their dads and stuff. And, and the guys around me are just kind of like, what the heck is happening here? And I'm like, oh, did you see that one guy? He was just sharing right there, you know? Like, I get it, guys. You're not interested in that kind of thing, at least at first, you know? But we still need to get together. We still need each other. Men, are you hearing what I'm saying? Feel free to disagree, but you're wrong. <laughs> Again, I, I'm not saying that we got to be mamby-pamby and, you know, whatever. That, that's not my point. But if you don't have a solid male Christian friend that you can talk to and say, you know what, I'm struggling with this. You need to find one. I'm so blessed that I have several men in my life that I can be like, you know what, John or, or Mike or, or, you know, whoever, I'm like, I'm really struggling with this thing right now. Or I have this problem and I don't know what to do with it. And I'm so thankful that I have those men. If you don't have that, 
find it. A way you might be able to find it, oh my gosh, I'm going way behind, but uh, a way you might be able to find it, one of the groups I'm starting uh, this, this spring is called the Outdoor Adventure Group. Now, it's open to everybody, not just, not just men, but you know, it's going to be stuff that men like a lot of times. We're going to be learning survival skills, you know, how to handle a knife, how to make furniture out in the woods, how to build a shelter, how to make fire without matches, you know, cool stuff like that. So keep an eye out for that. That's a good way to meet some other guys who like doing that thing. Ladies, hey, come and, well, don't come and meet guys, but, uh, you know, come and learn these skills. All right, it's not a singles group. They're never going to invite me to preach again. All right. So Ruth and, Ruth and Naomi make it to Bethlehem. And while Naomi has relatives in the area and people are excited to have them back, the fact remains that these two are just poor widow women. They had no jobs. They had no place to stay, no means of support, no one to take care of them. And this is not a good situation for them to be in, right? It's like if I just suddenly picked up and went to Germany, because, yeah, I knew there were home camps there, and I arrive in the city. I don't have a place to stay. I don't speak the language. I don't have a job. How am I going to take care of myself? Well, so Ruth goes out to one of the fields where the men are harvesting grain, and she begins to harvest what is left by them according to the law of Moses. See, God actually made provision for just this very situation. Leviticus uh, chapter 23, 22, this is part of the law of Moses that God gave to the Israelites. says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So it just so happens, right? We, we know that coincidence is the language of the Holy Spirit, right? Like God moves stuff around. It just so happens that the field she's in belongs to a man named Boaz, who's a relative of Naomi's dead husband. And he asks his men, hey, who's that lady over there? And when he finds out that it's Ruth, he goes over to her. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Boaz went over to Ruth and said, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. See, she knew. She was an outsider. She was from somewhere else. She wasn't part of the family. Boaz says, yes, I know. But I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. See, her reputation spoke for itself. She didn't have to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm Ruth. I'm the one that, that did this nice stuff for Naomi. No. She let her reputation speak for itself. She didn't have to tell him who, he, who she was because he already knew. And because of what she had done in converting to the worship of Yahweh and, and coming to this new land and honoring Naomi and being loyal to her, Boaz was willing to help her in return. And this was a big deal because remember we were just talking about how women had no status? That's why he said, look, stay in this field. Don't go to any others because I can't protect you in those other fields. But in my fields, I can protect you. And I can make sure that nobody bothers you, and I can make sure that you get enough grain to take home for you and Naomi to eat, and when you're thirsty, have some water. When it's time for lunch, sit down with my people, and they're going to take care of you. 
See, he's making provision for her because of what she had done for Naomi. See, we need to have a good reputation too. See, she was representing herself, but we represent Jesus. Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. And that means what we do reflects on him. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Like there were times when, when I would lose my temper at my old job. And I would say things that nobody has any business saying, much less a Christian. And I would think, oh, no. And I would have to tell the people that I worked with, I'd be like, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. Like, I have no business speaking that way. You know, I had to humble myself and apologize to them. See, because, like, the world already expects us to be hypocrites, right? Like, they're, they're ready for it. And so we have to show them that, yeah, we're not perfect. We have a loving God who forgives us. But we also have to show them that we are set apart from the world. Our lives should not look like the lives of everybody else. Our lives should be different. Paul in Romans 12, 17 through 18 says, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone, including the people on Facebook. See, so many times we want to toot our own horn or, or even defend ourselves. Anybody ever had somebody say something mean about you? Okay, just me. You guys are good. All right. Oh, Riley. Okay, me and Riley. Good. Right? Like sometimes people say mean stuff about us. Anybody ever had somebody say something mean about you that wasn't true? That's when I want to, like, rip the gloves off be like, that's not true. This is what happened. No, 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 blah, blah, blah. And see, that's why we have so many flame wars getting started on Facebook sometimes. I, I decided years ago that the only thing I was going to post on Facebook were the occasional Bible verses, stupid jokes, and, like, pictures of, of animals, you know? Like, that's it. And so now, like, the five people that still follow me enjoy that. Um, but I'm like, I don't want to dump more fuel on the fire. Like, that's not, what I, that's not what I go to Facebook for. But see, we need to let God defend us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. Somebody makes a foolish accusation against you, it's God's will that your honorable life will silence that. Is your life honorable? Man. When I, when I look seriously at my life, I'm like, eh, not always. And some of you are like, what kind of pastor is this? But listen, like, pastors are people too. We make mistakes. We need Jesus just as much as anybody else. We need the grace of God. Yeah, we are held to a higher standard, which is scary sometimes. But listen, this applies to everybody who is following Jesus. Jesus' example, in fact, 1 Peter 2.23 says, He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. Jesus left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. You want fair judgment? Leave it in God's hands. When you do that, he will take care of it. 1 Peter 5.6, So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. We don't have to lift ourselves up. We don't have to strive for recognition. Because if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, in his timing, he will take care of it. So let's continue our story. 
So Ruth goes home that night, and Naomi is amazed at how much grain she's collected, right? Because Boaz hooked her up. Ruth tells her what happened, and Naomi's really excited that it's Boaz's field because he's a family member and a kinsman redeemer. We're going to talk more about that in a second. So Ruth stays safe in Boaz's field until the end of the harvest, and then Naomi decides it's time to get a permanent home for Ruth. So one day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So ladies, you're looking for a man, don't come to church, go to the threshing floor, all right? That's where you find him. Um, I was going to make a farmersonly.com joke, but then I thought maybe not everybody would know what farmers only was. So, Now do as I tell you. Take a bath, always a good idea. Put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. What? Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Red flag. Like, <laughs> what kind of advice is this? Like, you want me to what? So... This is weird, right? Like, I can imagine Ruth is saying, like, are you sure this is what you want me to do? But she did it. She obeyed because she trusted. She trusted Naomi. She trusted that Naomi knew more about the culture. She trusted that Naomi knew more about the customs, about how things worked. But most of all, she trusted that Naomi had her best interests at heart. Do you trust God that way? Do I trust God that way? Not all the time. Sometimes we don't trust God because we've been hurt. Sometimes we don't trust God because we don't understand who he really is, what he's really like. I know a lot of people have a hard time with seeing God as their loving father because their earthly father was not good. Maybe your, your earthly father was abusive. Maybe your earthly father was just absent. And if that's your story, I'm so sorry. But listen, your heavenly father is perfect. And your heavenly father loves you perfectly. Sometimes it's because we just don't understand what God is doing. Anybody ever had that? Like, God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why did you let me get cancer? God, why did you let my, my wife have a, have a miscarriage? You know, God, why did, why did you let me lose my job when I have a two-month-old kid? You know, why, God, why, why did so-and-so die when I prayed for them? Why, why aren't you doing what I want you to do, God? Back in, uh, I think it was about 2012, 11, somewhere in that neighborhood, we were right in the middle of an adoption. So we were adopting uh, little Naya, my, uh, my 10-year-old going on 25. She is, uh, uh, she's originally from Ethiopia. We adopted her from there. And uh, she's a very great blessing. Sometimes when she rolls her eyes, um, you know, I want to smack her, but she's still a blessing. Um, but it was a long, hard, costly experience. When we first started it, we were actually matched with a little girl we named Adia, uh, who is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And paperwork was going. We'd spent money on this. 
And then we were informed halfway through the process that her grandmother had decided to keep her, and so we lost her. Now that happens. Well, then we were, then we were uh, matched with Naya, and it was wonderful. We were so excited. She was in Ethiopia. We were actually able to do, like, some uh, FaceTime with her and stuff. And, and you know, so, like, this, this beautiful little girl who is two years old, you know, I'm so excited. You know, she's going to be my daughter. And, and, and then we heard from the agency that she was gone. She just disappeared. Nobody knew where she went. We were heartbroken. Now, I cannot imagine what, what it would feel like to actually lose a child. So, so please don't think I'm, I'm saying something. But the only thing I can compare it to is it did. It felt like I, I lost a child. And when my wife called me, I was actually I was still working for Shepherds at the time. I was driving back from their North Manchester store. And I actually pulled to the side of the road because I was so hurt and I was so angry. I couldn't even see through my tears. I said, God, what are you doing? Like, why are you letting this happen? Like, if, if, if this is what following you is like, why am I even bothering? And then I heard a small voice say, do you trust me? And I had, at that moment, to make a decision. Was I going to trust that my heavenly father knew what was best? And I said, God, I don't understand. I don't like it. I want this to just do what I want to happen. Said, but I'm going to trust you. A couple months later, we got a call. Our uh, attorney in country, a man named Derge, illegally tracked her down, found her at an Italian orphanage in the capital city, explained to them what had happened, and they released her back to us. She's been here, what, eight years now? She's home. Now, not every story has a happy ending like that. There's been lots of things I've prayed for that I didn't get. But I know, without a doubt, that no matter what happens down here on earth, someday I'll understand, someday I will know, and someday I will see the hand of God moving in every circumstance that ever happened in my life. And that's the same thing for you as well. See, Psalm 119, 105, it's a verse a lot of us are familiar with. It says, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. It's not a light for my eyes. It's a light for my feet. It doesn't show me the end of the journey. It shows me the path. If you've ever had a lantern, you know, and it's night, you know it doesn't illuminate the entire way. It shows you a couple of steps at a time. And sometimes that's because God knows if he showed us the journey, if he showed us the ending, we'd turn around and run. I mean, that would be my story. Sometimes there's other reasons. See, Scripture is clear again that God is a loving Father. Matthew seven eleven, Jesus is talking. He says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? How many people like broccoli? I had to put my hand down. I hate broccoli. But you know what? I eat broccoli because it's good for me. It's not what I want, but it's what I need. Sometimes we pray for things, like I pray for a Big Mac, and I get broccoli instead because it's what I needed, not what I wanted. And that's the way it is with us. Like My kids may ask for something. Like my son, uh, Luke, where are you? Oh, right in the front. All right. Luke wants a bass guitar. 
It's $500. Like, that's cool, man. Like, I don't know why it's a $500 guitar, whatever, but I'm like, you're trying to save for a car, man. Save your money. So I told him no. He wanted a bass guitar, but he needed to save his money. Sometimes we pray for things that are not good for us. And so God says no. Sometimes we pray for things and God says, yeah, but not right now. And then sometimes we pray for things, God says, yeah, sure, here you go. But he always hears us. So Ruth does as Naomi asks. Boaz wakes up and finds this young woman laying at his feet. And he asks her what's going on, like I would too, like, uh, what, what are you doing? And she asks him to spread the corner of his garment over her. Boaz immediately realizes that she's asking him to marry her and take care of her. Now he's honored because he knows that she's a virtuous woman and because he's older than she is. Now, we don't know why he's not married. You know, maybe he's a widower, his wife died. Maybe he's just ugly or, or whatever it is. But, see, he's excited to take care of her. And, hey, listen, you know, my wife is almost seven years younger than me, so I know what it's like to be, like, a homely man and have a younger woman interested in you. So uh, I, I feel that with Boaz. Um, um, so he's excited to take care of her, but he tells her that there's someone else even closer than he is as a redeemer. And he's got to check with him first. So, you know, the other man, you know, they talk the next day. The other man relinquishes his claim, and Ruth and Boaz get married, live happily ever after. But see, what does it mean when I say that Ruth had a redeemer? See, this is what we're going to talk about. See, a family redeemer uh, under the law of Moses was the man or men in a family who had the privilege and responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. See, that same term is actually used of God, that redeemer, when he delivered the Israelites from slavery in, in Egypt. Now, some people have said, oh, you know, she's uncovering his feet and laying there and saying, hey, cover me with your blanket. You know, like, like she's doing something naughty, you know, expecting that. But see, I disagree because the word translated right there for, for uh, garment is kanap. And I'm sorry, I don't do Hebrew, so I probably mis uh, mispronounced it. But it means covering. And that exact same word is used by Boaz a chapter or two before when he talks about her sheltering under the wings of the Lord. See, she's, he knows. She's not asking for sex. She's asking for covering. She's asking for protection. She's asking for provision. And she's asking him to marry her. But I always wondered, I'm like, wait a second. When they got back to Bethlehem, why... Why wasn't somebody taking care of him? Like, I thought somebody was supposed to be doing that. And then it hit me as I was working on this. There was a man who was supposed to be taking care of them. It was this other guy who was in line ahead of Boaz. But he wasn't doing his job. He was supposed to be taking care of Naomi and Ruth, but he didn't. And because he didn't, it fell to Boaz. And Boaz stepped up and said, yeah, I'll take care of it. See, God has a plan, folks, and he wants to use us in his plans. God doesn't need us. He's God, but he wants us, and he invites us in. He says, look, this is what I'm doing. You can be a part of this. See, and Boaz was greatly blessed through his marriage with Ruth. Not only did he get a beautiful young wife out of the deal, but they ended up having kids, and his grandson was a man named Jesse. 
And if you remember the stories, Jesse was the father of a young man named David, who was King David, the greatest king Israel ever had, and the only man described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Boaz was his, gran- was his great-grandfather. And even cooler than that, through the line of descent in his humanity, Jesus was descended from Ruth and Boaz. Like, really? God used a foreigner to become the like, ultimate grandmother of Jesus? How cool is that? But it was because of her faithfulness. And it was because of Boaz's willingness to step up. And the man who was supposed to step into that role, we don't even know his name. All there is is a little paragraph or two in the book of Ruth about him. He lost that blessing. See, is there something that God has for you? Is there something that God is calling you to, but you're resisting? Because you don't want to take it on. Maybe you're scared or you're insecure like Moses was, like Pastor Deal was preaching about with Aaron. Is there something that God is calling you to do that you are resisting? Listen, if you resist long enough, he'll move on to somebody else. God's plans aren't going to be thwarted. And you're going to miss out on that blessing. And in case you're feeling like, oh, God would never use me. God can't use me. Well, God can use a former drunk. God can use somebody who is addicted to pornography. God can use somebody who flunked out of college. If God can use somebody like me, he sure as heck can use somebody like you. God loves to use outsiders. Just look what he did with Ruth. See, we have a redeemer too. And his name is Jesus. He's waiting to cover us. He's waiting to take care of us. He's waiting to bring us out of the kingdom of the enemy into his kingdom to become citizens, to become part of his family. So maybe you are at the point right now where you're still in Moab. Maybe you're living there and, and you haven't cut off that old way. Maybe you've never heard about Jesus until today. Well, in a little bit, we're going to give you an opportunity to move from Moab into the kingdom of God. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but there's something that God is calling you to do that you've been resisting. Again, maybe you're afraid of it. Maybe you're insecure. Maybe you don't feel like God wants to use somebody like you. Maybe you just don't plain want to. But God used her mightily, and he wants to use you mightily too, if you will let him. If that's you, we're going to pray for you in a moment as well. Actually, prayer partners, could you come up, please? And then finally, maybe there's something in your life that you know is not what God wants for you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's some kind of entertainment. Maybe it's an attitude or some secret sin. And if you want to lay that down today, we're going to pray for you too. If any of those three fit you or if you need prayer for something else, as we sing this final song, I invite you to come to the front. These folks are here to pray with you. I mean, it's not a requirement. You know, you can just come to the front and and just pray right with God. But as we found out last Sunday night at the encounter night, when you talk to another brother or sister about it, there's great power in that and there's great freedom in that. All right? For those of you who are online, you can click the request prayer button. If you're watching us later or you're on Facebook, you can go to mynewhope.in and click on request prayer there. We are here, ready and willing to pray for you. And I just ask that as we do this final song that you just open your hearts 
and listen to what God is calling you to. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed to come up and say, I've got something going on in my life. We've all been there. I shared some of mine with you today so you would know that you are not alone. 